A young doctor begins a year of internship at a prestigious New York hospital. Will it be a dream job or a nightmare? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined by author Dr. Matt McCarthy, who is author of the book, The Real Doctor, we'll see you shortly. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So as a person, what drew you to go to medical school? You know, it was one of these things that kind of happened randomly, where I went to college, went to Yale as an undergrad, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. And I took a pretty broad range of classes, and I ended up being pretty good at chemistry, and that led to biochemistry, and that led to me working in a lab. And I remember working in that lab as a junior, and I thought, wow, I'd love to be a, a principal investigator and have my own lab. And one of the people in that uh, that I was working with said, you know, it's really hard to be a successful lab person. Why don't you go to medical school? That way, if you still like research, you can do it. And if it turns out you're not very good at research, you've got an MD and you can see patients. And at 20 years old, that sounded very reasonable. <laughs> and so I was fulfilling the pre-med requirements anyway by virtue of being a biochem major. And next thing I knew, I found myself in medical school, having you know done reasonably well on the MCAT. And and it was something that I really hadn't planned for for that long. You know, a lot of the people in my classes had been dreaming of being a doctor for a long time, or they had a physician in the family, or they had been had some sort of illness as a child that inspired them to be, go and become a doctor. I didn't have that. I, I, I just wanted to be good at something. <laughs> and that's kind of the path that led me down to, to science and to medicine. And next thing I knew, I was in medical school and saying, holy cow, what am I doing here? And I kind of freaked out a little bit. And it seems like in the book, you, you were kind of wrestling between being a surgeon or being a general internist. How did you, what did you end up decide to do? Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the, the um, big decisions that all, all medical students have to make is, are you somebody who likes to do procedures? Are you more of a doer or are you more of a thinker? And I was okay using my hands, but I didn't really like it. I didn't really love being in the operating room. And you learn very quickly that if you can imagine being happy outside of the operating room, then you're probably not meant to be a surgeon and to have that really specific type of life. And, you know, I realized it wasn't for me. And so while it was thrilling, while it was exciting to get to be in the operating room, I, after three-month rotation, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. That was, a, that was a great three months, but I don't think I need to do that anymore. So where did you end up doing your, your internal medicine residency that's captured in the book? Yeah, so I graduated from Harvard Med in 2008, and two weeks later, I started my internal medicine residency at Columbia Presbyterian on 168th Street in, in Manhattan. And it was the, the bright lights in the big city. You know, I'd never really spent that much time in, in New York. And the transition was, was really jarring both personally to be in such a big city. I was suddenly living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And then professionally to go from kind of the idyllic medical school situation to suddenly working 30-hour shifts and being a zombie for, for a very, very long period of time. So, so this this account of your of your first year, were you writing as the year went on? I was keeping notes very closely and keeping a journal, and you know I wanted to document, for my own sake, what I was going through and what it was like, and it was a really powerful time just to be seeing all of this humanity, really, and you know I kept a, an incredibly detailed journal until something somewhat bad happened to me in 
the, the fall of my intern year. And it was, you know, this, basically the second half of my book where, you know, I have this needle stick and my life gets upended. And at that point, it was such a painful period for me that I stopped writing about it. So, so what year were you an intern? Uh, 2008. The 2008 to 2009 uh, academic year. So was this kind of pre the kind of the intern 16-hour work days and? It was definitely pre that. You know, we when you know people joke about the days of the giants, and I certainly wasn't a giant, but I got to work at a time where it was expected that we do 30-hour shifts every fourth night, and uh, I was I was really a zombie for for a good part of that intern year. And now, you know, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor at Cornell, and I just came from, from rounds with my, my general medicine team here, and the interns can't work more than 16 hours. And the, the second and third years, I believe the cap is 24 hours. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I, I don't know how much was gained in that tw- hour 24 to hour 30. So what did you expect? You know, did, you know were, were you one of these folks who, boy, I'm going to start internship and it's going to be – horrific or were you one of these folks who you know it's all going to work itself out you know i felt like i was going uh jumping out of an airplane with a parachute and an instructor strapped to you and they were telling me like this is going to be crazy but you're going to get through it you're going to survive you're going to land on the ground but it's going to be really weird and really hard and you're going to be scared and that's kind of how it was it was it was like jumping out of an airplane, and, you know, for a large part of it, I felt like I was in free fall and not really knowing what I was doing, but then I also had a team of really talented supervisors, whether it was second-year residents or third-years or fellows or attendings, to kind of guide me through it and, and reassure me in those really crucial periods, but it was, it was a, a terrifying and inspiring year. Well, it was nice that they started you off in the ICU, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's you know, a very... Yeah, you know, very much kind of jumping out of the airplane. Do you want to talk a little bit about the ICU and Dr. Dr. Bayo? Yeah, yeah. So I still am very close with him. I talk with him all the time. And I talked with him before the book was coming out. And I said, you know, I'm going to write about what that first month was like. And he said, oh, geez, you didn't know anything. And I said, yeah, I know. And, and I thought that you knew everything. And he said, oh, I didn't know everything. And I said, but from my eyes, you know, as someone who just got the, the term doctor attached to his name, and I realized that I didn't know how to make many of the medical decisions, and that I turned to you for so many of them, you know, I kind of glorified this guy who was really just a year ahead of me and who seemed so incredibly competent. And, you know, I had never really set foot in a cardiac care unit before. It's not part of the mandatory, you know, curriculum for a medical student to graduate. So. Suddenly, I was in this ICU with 18 of the sickest patients in the world, and, or in the hospital at least, and they were on, you know, ventricular cyst devices. They were waiting for transplants. They were constantly having their heart stops or going going into these crazy arrhythmias, and I was overwhelmed. And I felt very fortunate to have somebody there who could really guide me through that. But but I was terrified. He, he certainly had a Yoda type kind of feel in the book, if if in my interpretation. And that's what, I, you know, I've, I've been touring the country talking to, to residents and medical students about the book, and so many of them say that they feel that way when they're, you know, third-year medical students or fourth-years or, or interns, and they're terrified of the idea that in just a very short period of time, they're going to be expected to be that Yoda, or they're going to be expected to be this person with wisdom when they don't feel like they really have it. And I still feel that way as the attending on service, that people turn to me with really tough questions and 
I'm expected to have some wisdom, and whether or not I have that remains to be seen. You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. We're talking with author Dr. Matt McCarthy with his book, The Real Doctor. We'll see you shortly. So there's a there's a patient of Benny Santos who is a recurring figure in the book, and it's very kind of nice how he kind of intersperses with you. Uh, I found a, a beautiful humanity in your kind of really not knowing how to approach him in the beginning. You want to talk a little about him? Yeah. You know, this is my first day as a as a doctor, I, you know, I'm in the cardiac care unit, and there's 18 patients, and 17 of them are on ventilators or, you know, on these incredibly powerful medications, and they're not really conscious. And then there was one guy in the corner just riding a stationary bike watching Judge Judy on TV, and I was, he just looked so out of place, and I went over and introduced myself, and he was waiting for a heart transplant. And he'd been waiting a long time, and he was going to continue to wait for a very long time. And it was this kind of parallel journey that I thought we were on where he was waiting for a heart, and I jokingly felt like I was waiting for a brain, like, you know, to have the medical knowledge to be a real doctor. And what I discovered was as our time went by, you know, he spent months and months and years in the hospital that it was not fair to make this comparison that we were on some journey together because with every passing day, I was acquiring more medical knowledge, more skill, more basically more ability to to be a doctor. But the, the passing of the calendar didn't really bring anything to him. He was just sitting there watching TV, waiting for a heart transplant that might not ever come. And it was a very strange situation. And, you know, I don't want to spoil how things turn out, but I can tell you that he and I are still very close, and we text each other now, and that's seven years after we met each other. And I think that, you know, you don't often get that now with the way that the medical system works, that if as a physician or as a student, if you meet somebody in the hospital, it's a very transitory experience. You know, you see them for a couple of days and they're gone. And this is a guy who seven years later, I'm still very much invested in his life and he's invested in mine. And, you know, he asks how my, my son is doing and, and stuff like that. So it's, it was a really nice thing for me to get to meet someone like that. And you alluded to your needle stick, which certainly seemed to kind of be this cloud that hung over a lot of the book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I was on my um, infectious disease rotation. I was uh, uh, drawing blood on a patient who had HIV, and I had a syringe full of that man's blood, and I mistakenly stuck it into my finger. And suddenly, uh, the, the HIV virus was injected into my body, and I didn't know how much of it was there or how... It, how long it would be there or what was going to happen. And suddenly I went from being someone who was trying to learn how to take care of patients to a guy who was taking 11 pills a day trying to learn how to take care of myself. And, you know, I went from being this very cavalier person saying things like, I don't understand why people with HIV don't take their medications, to being the guy who was dreading taking my HIV medications and the fact that they were making me feel nauseated and having diarrhea and vomiting and you know, I was taking them to prevent the virus from taking hold in my body, not because I had contracted it. And it was, you know, a prophylactic thing for me. But for a month, I was as miserable <laughs> physically as anyone could possibly be. And it was, you know, a chunk of the book is dedicated to what is it like when you have, you know, you've got the mental exhaustion of trying to be a doctor, and then you've got the physical exhaustion and torment of, you know, being ill, and I had no appetite, and I lost weight, and I felt lousy. And the interesting part is that those experiences led me to be interested in infectious diseases and led me to go on to become an HIV doctor. And, and 
know, I'm an HN infectious disease specialist now. And part of that is because I got to see what these patients go through, and I became very interested in that life. So one of the things in the book that stood out to me is, is the thing that probably um, made my blood boil the most is, you know, a day or two after having your needle stick, you have a chief resident at a, ba- a resident ballot group wanting to have a talk on needle sticks. And not, not, the, not the emotions of needle sticks, but chastising all type of thing. That is the way that a lot of hospitals work, is that when something happens that's unfortunate or something happens that's bad, rather than dealing with the human element of it, it's, we, it's how do we address this to show that we care about this issue. Uh, and so we'll have a workshop or we'll have a meeting or we'll have a this so that we can show others that we take this seriously. And in my case, you know, they had this workshop to show everyone how to draw blood because clearly guys like Matt McCarthy didn't know what they were doing. And that made me feel even worse. And, you know, I'm just so used to that kind of response in medicine. You know, when we, uh, when we get, you know, dinged on our hospital evaluation by patients by saying that we're not good communicators, the response is to make us, you know, go to a workshop on how to communicate better. And there's always some sort of knee-jerk response that's not necessarily the right one. And I felt that 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 kind of a response, all it did was make me feel, I didn't think I could feel worse, but that that made me feel worse. In medicine, we're often attracted to a little bit of gallows humor. Is there, and there there are some very funny moments in the book. Is there, is there something that stood out to you though, as kind of the, you know, one of the kind of the funniest kind of dark moments of that year? You know, there's a moment from that year that I actually, uh, it ended up on the cutting room floor of a, of Random House's uh, editorial room, which is, um, we were first-year doctors, and there was a, a, a dead bird in the hallway, and it just stayed there for day after day after day, and we were like, you know, this is one of the best hospitals in the world, and we always saw the sign, you know, the motto of the hospital is amazing things are happening here. And after several days, a sign appeared above the bird, and it said, security knows about the bird. So rather than removing it, they just said, we know, we're on it. And people would just kind of walk around, the doctors, and we would, instead of saying amazing things are happening here with an exclamation, we would, we would say it more with a question mark. And, you know, those little moments like that that, that really actually build camaraderie among the, the, the healthcare workers that, you know, they're working so hard, so tired, so exhausted, uh, and you see little little moments of dark humor like that, and you just start giggling, and and you know, kind of just we're all in it together. And and I think that that was one of the things I tried to have shine through in the book is just how much we relied on each other, and how much I relied on my co-interns and my colleagues to get through the days because there were days where I didn't want to didn't want to be there. I just wanted to go home and watch TV or have a glass of wine. But you know, I was in the middle of a 30-hour shift, and someone would go and take me to Wendy's or go give me a Frosty or do something to pick me up. And, and that's a really special thing about medicine is how, how we interact with each other. One of, the, one of the things that made me saddest about the book is it, I really don't have the sense in reading the book that, that your attendings really were kind of there, there for you emotionally, at least as depra- portrayed in the book. You being an attending now, because I mean, I'm a I'm a attending teaching physician, and I, I I would be horrified if my residents portrayed me in a kind of a not caring way. How have you broken the cycle now? If you're an attending teaching physician, well, you know that's a really hard thing to do because the attendings I had at Columbia Columbia is kind of an old school place, you know, and it's uh, I got through it, so you'll get through it, 
And that really changed, I think, in the last year, you know, what we're dealing with at, at Columbia, you know, last August, um, after a, a long shift, one of the first-year doctors went home, jumped, climbed up to the top of a building in Manhattan and jumped off and killed himself. And three days later, an intern at Cornell, where I work, did the same thing. So we had a dual suicide within three days. And it brought us that we all had these immediate faculty meetings to try to address this and, and say, what are we doing to our, our young doctors? And what are we doing to our, our first-year physicians? And, you know, the colleague, the attendings broke into two camps. You know, there was one camp that said this, these were mental health issues. These were um, isolated and regrettable events. But this was about mental health. And then there was another camp, which I was a part of, which said, you know, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we chalk this simply up to mental health. I mean, look, both of these kids, and they were really just kids, killed themselves after long shifts, 20-hour shifts in the ICU. It's not like they did this while they were on vacation. And so it, gave, it really led to a lot of soul-searching, I think, among all of the faculty, both at Columbia and Cornell. And, you know, we have this new motto it's called Walk the Dog, and the idea is that there are some residents that have dogs, and they literally have to go outside of the hospital and walk their dogs for 10 minutes, and that we should all feel as though we could take five or 10 minutes for our own mental health or our own sanity. And whether or not that's doing anything, I don't know, but I think the culture is changing, that we're not trying to, to treat residency training like it's boot camp, where you break people down and then build them back up. We're just trying a little bit to just build them up. and. Whether or not that's going to make for a different type of doctor, I don't know. Um, but I think that there has been a, a subtle culture change because of the, those events of last August. And I, and I really think in, in reading it, I was really kind of hearkened to House of God, which, you know, back, back when I trained, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of kind of similarities and a lot of parallels. And I think it's to me, and I think that's a great compliment, is that, that it has a modern kind of House of God feel to it. And and did you kind of wrestle with any of that when you were writing it? Well, you know, when I was a first-year medical student, uh, one of my best friends in the class gave me House of God, and I started reading it, and I got probably 25 pages into it, and I said, I should be reading this, but not right now. I don't know that as I've seen like one patient in my life. I think I need to wait. So I'm actually not really familiar with the ins and outs of, of House of God to know whether or not it's a, you know, a, a modern take on things. But what I do know is how that, that, that just from reading the beginning of it is how patients were portrayed in that. And I was very careful to try to portray patients carefully. And you know, one of the, the grand rounds talks I give, um, I gave one last month um, on the ethics of doctors writing about patients, and I think it's a very tricky area. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about should a physician write about a patient if he or she does not have written consent? You know, if you change details, is that sufficient? Because we have this very special relationship, you know, with with patients where we're not just journalists reporting a story. We've got to protect people. And, and I think that it's going to be an ongoing discussion because people want to know what it's like to be a doctor and what we're going through and what these cases are like. And we have to do it in a respectful way. And I think it's a wonderful book, and I think anyone who is interested in what it's like to be a, kind of a young doctor in, in our kind of very modern times and lots of technologies and, and sometimes disconnect between 
everything. Uh, I think it's just a wonderful read. I think there is some kind of humor and, and certainly lots of heart and lots of humanism and a wonderful book. The author is Dr. Matt McCarthy, and the book is The Real Doctor. We'll see you shortly. Doctors, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you so much. This was great.